We're nearing the end of our study of Colossians, as you know, so if you have your Bible and you're open to chapter 3, we're going to finish that day. We'll get close to finishing the book. I've already sent to Fred and Joel the material on Nehemiah, which is uh, the book we're going to study uh, when we're finished with this. I think I love to study Nehemiah. It's a, it's a tremendous book. But we're going to uh, look at it from a variety of different perspectives. I want you to have the historical background, but also, of course, uh, uh, who is Nehemiah and what does he teach us about relationship with God? He's one of the great leaders of the Bible, and we'll also, at the end, when we're done with that, about 2023 or 24, <laughs> we'll go over the leadership principles that I think are, uh, are uh, I think, relevant and applicable to us today and just surface from the book of Nehemiah. If you're interested in a really good, and this is just a suggestion, you, there's no requirement for this, but it's a nice little book, Chuck Swindoll's commentary on Nehemiah called Hand Me Another Brick is just a great, great little book on Nehemiah. And that's just, you know, it's not a detailed exegetical commentary, but it's really, really a helpful book. And the typical Swindoll insights are just all over the book. Today we're moving from, uh, well, let's quickly review the book of Colossians. Chapter 1, the Apostle Paul establishes the preeminence of Jesus Christ, arguing strongly for his deity and his preeminence as the Lord of the universe. Chapter 2, Paul answers what probably had real relevance to the church at Colossae, but a lot of the false teachings, and he interacts with them, again, showing what? The preeminence of Jesus. Chapter 3, he is focusing on the transformation that Christ brings to a person's life. And if you remember the first four verses of chapter 3, we are to have an upward look and a forward look. Upward look, we're always thinking about the eternal significance of what we do. Forward look, we're looking to the return of Christ. Amen. He promised he would come back for us. And fulfilling that promise is one of the uh, contents of our hope. And then secondly, which is what we just finished last week, organized around five commandments, five imperatives, uh, are what the new life that God is pr producing, the transformation, transformed life that he's producing, what does that transformation look like? And we finished that discussion last week, ending with uh, the fourth one in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That is just a tremendous reminder. God is not a fair-weather friend. God is not just someone you talk to, have a relationship with 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. It's a 24-7 relationship. So he says, whatever you do, that's an all-inclusive idea. In word or deed, do everything. Again, everything means everything <laughs> in the name of the Lord Jesus. What verse are you in? Uh, I'm just uh, closing out with verse 17 of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse uh, 18, he moves into now our interpersonal relationships. Is God transforming those interpersonal relationships? And so what I did up here, I, as, when I finished, I looked at it, that's really a mess. So I don't know if you're going to be able to follow it. But what I did here is you'll see, and we go through this, this little phrase, in the Lord, keeps appearing. And every relationship that he discusses, he ties to in the Lord. In other words, a husband is to treat his wife in the Lord, a wife is to respond to her husband in the Lord, Fathers, treat your children, discipline your children in the Lord. And then the last one, he talks about economic relationships. Now, I want to say something about that. So that is really important because what we do here is we get the sense. Listen very carefully to the sentence. Jesus Christ transforms our interpersonal relationships. And so, therefore, a husband and wife relationship from God's perspective, is no longer a natural relationship. It's a supernatural relationship. Parent-child relationships are no longer just natural relationships. It's a supernatural relationship. And the relationships within the economic sphere of life, in the ancient world, that was primarily a slavery relationship, which I want to talk briefly about in just a minute. But it's basically the economic relationship, employer to employee. Now, as a part of that, I want to remind you that the husband and wife relationship, marriage, is a divinely instituted institution. Divinely made institution. The creation ordinance of God in Genesis 1 and 2. 
The very first institution God's created is marriage. And so therefore, that's, that's important for us to remember that marriage isn't just some product of social evolution. It is created by, instituted by, and the ideal laid out for us by God. And it's the same with the parent-child relationship because that's part of, of the marriage. But slavery is not a divine institution. Slavery is a human institution. And God will say much about that. And what God is interested in doing initially is regulating it and then ultimately abolishing it. But just keep that in mind. That is, sometimes people really dump on this. You guys believe in slavery. I don't. Neither do you. But what the Bible is doing is it's looking at an institution that due to human sin developed, and God now starts to zero in on what do we do with that relationship now that we're Christians. But we're going to briefly talk about that. My main goal is to look at what Paul says in relation to our economic relationships. So, again, what he's doing here in these verses, and they're really short. Uh, in other books of the Bible, particularly Ephesians, these are whole chapters. So here you have it in short, pithy statements, and he's done with it. But it's focusing on the transformation of human relationships. Now I want you to notice, in verse 18, you see, in the Lord. In verse 20, the Lord. In verse 22, the Lord. In verse 23, the Lord. In verse 24, the Lord. At the end of verse 24, the Lord Christ. Why does he keep repeating that? Pardon me? For emphasis. To emphasize it. To drive home that these interpersonal relationships must be centered in the Lord, draw their energy and power from the Lord, pleasing to the Lord. So don't look at these, and this is really an important sentence, don't look at these relationships the way the non-Christian world looks at them. Did you hear that sentence? Don't look at these the way the non-Christian world looks at them. Look at them the way the Lord wants us to look at them. So, I'm ready to start. Are you ready to start? Yes. All right. Because some of these words are some of the most outrageously incendiary words in 2019 you can utter. And if you don't know what I mean, you're going to soon know what I mean. Wives, submit to your husbands. There's a non-controversial, non-provocative sentence in 2019, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. I'll stop there. The main... Maybe Let me rephrase that. The primary passage on this, relationship of husband and wife. May I use another piece of Yes, you may. I feel guilty about using this, and I want to get Joel's permission each time we, we do this. So I want to do this this way, if I might. The Bible doesn't use this analogy, but I think it's clear throughout the scriptures that a marriage relationship is like a triangle. And that marriage relationship is first defined by a wife having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And by a husband, let's put an arrow there, and by a husband having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If that relationship doesn't exist, for either the wife or the husband, or for both of them, the marriage is going to have difficulty. It doesn't mean it's not going to last, but it's going to have difficulty. What the Bible presents is, wife, your relationship to Jesus Christ impacts your relationship with your husband. Husband, your relationship with Jesus Christ impacts your relationship with your wife. So as we look then at that relationship between the husband and wife, again, what Paul is saying is, in the Lord, he's assuming and he's teaching, and he wants us to understand that this marriage relationship is dependent on the husband and the wife both having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. Understanding that his death, burial, and resurrection was for them, they appropriated that by faith, they're in God's family, they belong to Jesus Christ. 
Now, if that is not the case, then that marriage is not going to be all that God wants it to be. But because that's the case, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 30, I'm going to close it out at 32, is that the relationship of the husband, of the wife to the husband, is like her relationship to Jesus. So as she submits to Jesus, she is to submit to her husband. Now that, I mean, again, that word in English, submit, in 2019, implies the husband's superior to the wife. That's not what it says. So let me do something else. May I use a third piece? Pushing it. Okay. I promise I won't use a fourth one. First of all, in terms of the wife-husband, like abbreviate, you'll know what I mean, the Bible stipulates equality between a man and a woman-husband relationship. Equality in what sense? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and following, what do you have? Both the husband and the wife, both the man and the woman, are created in the image of God. I've been married to Peggy for 50 years. Am I more in the image of God than Peggy? Is she more in the image of God than me? That's a ludicrous question. No. We are both created by God. We're, we, we bear his image, and that needs to be explained. But there's an equality there. And there's also an equality spiritually. And what I mean by this is both of us came to Christ by faith. There was no other requirement. Bible speaks that faith is like childlike faith. It's a simple faith. You understand what Christ did for you, you respond in faith, and now you're a part of God's family. You're a child of, of the Heavenly Father. And so another way of saying that is at the cross, there's equality. And the great verse for that, to begin to think about it, is Galatians 3.28. And so you have this incredible affirmation that when you were talking about this relationship of a husband and wife in a marriage where Christ is in the, in the marriage, is there's equality between a husband and a wife. This isn't a question of he's better than her, he's superior than her, or vice versa. That's not the issue. The issue is they're both equal in the image of God, they're both equal spiritually at the cross, and they're both trouble writing here at the bottom. They're both joint heirs with Christ, and that's in 1 Peter 3.17. Now that's a fantastic idea, a fantastic concept, an almost unimaginable concept, but Jesus promises you're going to rule and reign with me in the coming kingdom. Amen. And the husband and the wife share that equally. And so it, it isn't a matter of your position, it is uh, of your uh, position in Christ. It isn't a matter of your future in Christ. There's total, pure, 100% equality between the husband and wife. What the Bible talks about is not your your value and your worth and your dignity. Husband and wife are equal in that area. What we're talking about are roles. What's the role relationship between a husband and wife? Is God interested in that? Mm -hmm. Yes. And he defines the relationship between a husband and wife as the wife relates to Jesus, as the husband relates to Jesus, so the husband and wife are to relate to one another. The wife, as she submits to Jesus Christ, he's her Lord, he's her Savior. And submit means, listen carefully for this definition, that inclination to follow and that disposition to yield to a servant leader. You're all looking at me as if I'm speaking German or something. Is this like you have a disposition to... 
It is that inclination to follow, that disposition to yield to a servant leader. Is that the relationship she has with Jesus? Is Jesus her servant leader? He's her Lord, he's her Savior, he's her Master, but he's her servant leader. He refers to himself as the shepherd. In John chapter 13, he washes the disciples' feet. As I did that to you, you do that to everyone. Whether he's saying literally we wash one another's feet or whether that's just a figure of speech of serving one another. And even I was, I was struck by this the other day. I was reading the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And it struck me of something that is absolutely extraordinary there. Here's the resurrected Jesus Christ. He has completed his work. He's about to go back to the Father. And the guys are out there in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. The guys are out fishing. And they're coming back. And Peter's looking, it's the Lord! And he jumps out of the ship. But what was Jesus doing? Cooking. Cooking. What was he making for them? Breakfast. The Lord of the universe, the resurrected Jesus Christ, I don't know if he caught the fish, maybe he bought it at, uh, what's the fish place? Yeah, maybe he bought it there, I don't know. But he cleaned the fish, he made the fire, Presumably there's some kind of a little plate in which you cook. So he cooked breakfast to these guys, and he serves them. Can you imagine the Lord of the universe making breakfast for these guys? Serving these guys. That's, a, that's an extraordinary picture to me. Servant leader. Yes. He's the model servant leader for us. And so as she has that relationship, that inclination to follow that disposition to yield to her servant leader, Jesus, so she is to relate to her husband. And Paul says again in Ephesians 5, the husband is to love his, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loves the church. So Jesus, as his, his response to the wife is he loves her. Now, his response to the husband, he loves her too. And he is to submit too, but he's defining that relationship. And the love there, as you know, is agape, but it's that self-sacrificial, self-denial, other-centered, servant love. So I don't know about you, and I wrote it to mess up here, but when you start talking about it in the terms that the Bible talks about it, you start to understand marriage is supernatural. Amen. Marriage is a supernatural relationship. And if, if, if husbands and wives do not understand this and are not depending on the Lord Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit to pull it off, they're not going to pull it off. And it's not going to work. And so when you get to verse 32 of Ephesians 5, now we're not even in Colossians yet, but in Ephesians 5.32, Paul says, after he describes all these relationships, and impacts all their meaning. He says, <coughs> what I'm speaking to you is a mystery. It's difficult. And then, semicolon, but I'm speaking of Christ in the church. <laughs> I remember years and years and years and years ago, when I first was reading it and studying it to teach, I thought, what in the world does he mean? And then I started to think about it. Well, he's defined the relationship between husband and wife in terms of the relationship with Jesus. And if Jesus loves the church, and Jesus serves the church, and the wife and the husband submit to the, to, to the Lord Jesus, and you start to put all that together, you start to say, that's supernatural. So the, the marriage, the institution of marriage, now listen to how I'm going to put this, is like a proclamation of the gospel. It's something supernatural. And so as people see that, they see something supernatural. And if you were Satan, what would the, be the primary institution you'd want to attack and undermine? Marriage. The first one. The first one. Because if you can undermine that and destroy that, you're destroying one of the major purposes of marriage, which is to proclaim the transformational grace of the gospel. Because these kinds of relationships are absolutely transformational. No husband intuitively, instinctively, Loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Because maybe you don't maybe you don't understand this, 
But husbands are very selfish, self-centered people. I know it's an abstract thought to you. You don't have a clue what I'm talking about. And so Jesus will transform that relationship, will transform that attitude, will transform that emotion so that a husband will serve his wife, will lead his wife with a servant, self-sacrificial, other-centered spirit. And if that's the case, a woman will have that inclination to follow and that disposition to yield to that kind of a servant. Now, does that mean that she is inferior to him? No. And that relationship that they develop and work out is based on a dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ, but an understanding of one another. In that same passage of first, wherever I wrote it, first Peter three, verse verse seven, Paul says, or excuse me, Peter says, Husbands, seek to understand your wives. He doesn't say that wives seek to understand your husbands. He says that husbands seek to understand your wives. I, I think I wrote that over here. But that, or maybe it was on the other side. Yeah, that should, be, that should be 7. Not 17, that should be 7. But First uh, Peter 3, 7. But I, I've, I've thought about that a lot. Oh, my goodness. I've been married to Peggy for fifty over 50 years now. Um, I'm not sure I still understand her. <laughs> it's part of the sanctification. Yes, yeah, part of the sanctification. <laughs> More my sanctification than hers, that's for sure. You got it. But, you know, it's really, it, I've been through, uh, I mean, she's had a number of physical issues, heart and, and autoimmune disease. Been through that with her, been through menopause with her, been through raising two kids with her. And you know what? She changes. She's not the same now as she was. And it's just there's so many things that are different, but seek to understand. I still had a guy who used to say, guys, your primary job every time you wake up in the morning is say, good Lord, morning. No, good morning, Lord. And then it's your day. I'm dependent on you. Help me to be the man you want me to be. And then your third prayer is, Lord, help me to understand Peggy today. Because a husband that is fairly attentive to his wife knows that she goes through a 30-day cycle. And emotionally, she's very different. Certain days of that 30-day cycle. Maybe you didn't notice that in your marriage. It's a very significant thing to notice. It's a very significant thing to be attentive to. And that's part of what Peter, it's in back of what Peter is saying. Men, husbands, seek to understand your wives. That's your obligation. You're the servant leader. And there are four places in the Bible you can cite where God gives primary responsibility to the husband. That's a very unpopular thing to talk about today. It's, a very, it's, a, it's an offensive thing for many people to hear. But that's how the Bible presents it. Because if things do not work out, whom does God hold responsible? The husband. That doesn't mean there isn't accountability. Well, anyway. it, but it, it's defining these roles. So I, mean, I want to repeat this again. This isn't an issue of equality, and it isn't an issue of the future. In both of these, the husband and the wife share equally image of God spiritually and joint heirs. What the Bible talks about in Ephesians and what we're talking about in, in Colossians 3 is the role responsibilities. Do you have that? That is the role responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And transformational power that comes from Jesus Christ is the only way you can live up to these role responsibilities. And it's just, it's amazing to me that Everybody, I remember I used to, they don't have these anymore, but I used to be in panel discussions. They would call them debates. They weren't many debates, really, but talking about feminist issues. When the feminist revolution was really taking off and all, it was impacting business, impacting education, and they would ask me to come be a part of a panel. And the very first thing I would say is I stipulate equality between the man and the woman. And a couple of times that people were shocked by this. Because remember one time I was de- debating in the, in the panel was a, a, a dean of women at a local college who was a, a lesbian. She was very open about that. And when I said that, I stipulated equality. She, at first she didn't know what to say. 
because she expected me to talk about the superiority of the husband. That's not the issue. I said, the issue from genuine biblical Christianity isn't equality. The Bible stipulates equality. What the Bible is interested in, what God is interested in, is what are the role responsibilities in this marriage? What are the role responsibilities in this relationship? There are role responsibilities between a parent and a child. There are role responsibilities in a workplace between a boss, a manager, and an employee. So there are role relationships, role responsibilities, excuse me, in a marriage. And that's what the Bible's getting at. And you can reject it. You can say, I don't want to talk about this. I don't want to obey this. That's fine. God doesn't force his way on you. He's just saying you'll live with the consequences if you don't follow what I'm saying. And so Paul is laying this out. And again, in Colossians, it's very short, pithy, and he's done with it. Like in verse 1, or verse 18, he has, he has about eight verses on this in, in Ephesians. He's one here. Same way with, with 19. He has like seven verses on the husband, and this is one. Do not be harsh with them. That's how the ESV translates that, the end of verse 19. Do not be harsh with them. And harsh is a very intense, it implies physical, because in the Greco-Roman world, physical abuse by a husband of his wife was the norm. Isn't that awful? That was the norm. That was not unusual. The, 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 the role of the man in a Greco-Roman marriage, a man could, before he gets married, could have a hundred different prostitutes and fight the law, Greco-Roman law, he was still considered a virgin. And that's kind of unbelievable. Once you get married, it was not unusual for a man to have several different mistresses. Not the wife. And it was not unusual, legitimized and sanctioned by Greco-Roman law, for a husband to abuse his wife. So when Paul says, don't be harsh with them, that had a piercing, penetrating meaning, meaning to a Greco-Roman person who just trusted Christ. A number of years ago, I was in Ecuador. Uh, I was speaking at a conference of missionaries and, and um, leaders of the Latin American church in the whole western half of Latin America. It was really neat. I had a lot of frequent fire miles, so I took my kids with me and Peggy with me. And it was really a tremendous three weeks there. It really was. But after the conference was over, uh, we went up to uh, uh, a village where one of the graduates of the school I used to lead uh, was, uh, had a missionary base. And they were ministering to the Quechua Indians. An incredible revival was going on. 1961, there were no churches among the Quechuas. Today, there's 530 churches. It's incredible, incredible. And uh, as I was uh, observing what this guy knew, one of my former students who uh, was leading this missionary outreach, but anyway, he was teaching the Quechuas, and he was teaching them Ephesians 5. And he was teaching them just some of the stuff I was talking about, and he was talking about your responsibility to love your wife and serve your wife as Christ loved the church and describe what that meant. And one of the Quechua Indians stood up, Brother Dan, Brother Dan, Brother Dan, does that mean I stop beating my wife? That was a legitimate question. He really meant that. I mean, it was like, oh, I was, I, as I heard him say that, I, you know, it was translated for me then, but as I heard him say that, I thought, oh my goodness, that's back in the first century. A Greco-Roman man comes to know Jesus Christ, now all of a sudden the Bible is saying to him, don't beat your wife, don't treat your wife hard, serve your wife, love your wife as Christ loved the church. You talk about transformation. That, I mean, that's just astonishing. So as the gospel invades a culture, what starts to change? People. And as people start to change, what else changes? Culture. The way to change culture is not by government laws from Washington, D.C., it's by them coming to know Jesus Christ. That's how culture changes, permanently and decisively. And so what Paul, don't, don't treat these verses flippantly. Paul is saying something to these families in Colossae who only a few years ago had come to know Christ. Here's the transformational goal has for you, God has for you in your marriage. And they must have said, oh my goodness. I mean, he's talking about something so radical, so un unheard of and unprecedented in the way they think. They didn't have any models for this. Paul couldn't point to a model. This is how you, there wasn't any. 
So he's saying, you guys got to be the models. And so he moves in. Uh, okay, I, I'm just going real fast and I'm talking because I want to cover a lot today, so I should slow down. Peggy always says, why are you always in a hurry? There aren't any tests. There aren't any final exams. You don't have to have grades in. Take your time. So I'll slow down. Any questions? Yeah, up front. Would you, how would you um, describe this in the sense that it's not like the light is on and the light is off in terms of how uh, we become conformed? Um, can you give us some encouragement along that line of that process? Well, yeah, this, this is God's ideal, and when as was the case with these folks, and will be the case for us. When you come to know Christ and you face, this is God's goal for me, this is part of the word that Woody used, our favorite word, the process of sanctification. It's process. And this takes time. When you have someone that, like again, we use the example of Colossae, a Greco-Roman person hearing this, coming to know Christ, and now this is the way the relationships are supposed to look. It takes time. It takes time for this. This doesn't happen overnight, and you all know that. But, you know, it's part of this, and that's why the New Testament is so clear on these kinds of things. The New Testament sets the target for us. Because if we don't know what the target is in God's eyes, we'll never hit it. But you know what the target is. This is God's ideal. And it's only in dependence on him, and only as we grow in dependence and grow in faith, that we begin to see the transformation taking place. Does the, does the devil have a role in trying to throw a monkey wrench into that deal and it's scourging? Or, I mean, well, since you ask the question the way you ask it, you already know the answer. Yes. I, you know, there's you know, one There's uh, one person in the universe that over everyone else does not want this to succeed, and it is safe. And again, I just, you know, I, I mentioned that a moment ago. If you were the devil... What institution would you have as your bullseye? Family, marriage. You would. Because you, I think you all know this. There is nothing, well, maybe I shouldn't say it quite that way. One of the most devastating aspects of, of, of a relationship is a divorce or the failure of a marriage or the breakdown between parents and children, which is the next verse. They're terribly emotionally wrenching and hurtful and so on. And who loves to see that? God is a God of order and love and stability. Satan is a God of hate, abuse, and dysfunction. He loves disorder, Satan. And so that, that spiritual battle that is so real is, is, is going to be especially, I think, manifested in family relationships. Because that's the one thing he doesn't want to succeed. And I really do think that, and I can tell you this right now, the fact that Peggy and I are married for over 50 years is due to one person, Jesus Christ. Amen. It isn't due to us. The first three years of our marriage were a disaster. When I came to know Jesus Christ, I had filed for divorce. I mean, it was, it was an absolute disaster. I mean that. And there were things that were happening in both of our lives, and that's when we both came to Christ independently. It was an incredible thing. And it was just very clear that God wanted us to come back together. And those, that next year, 18 months, were not good. I mean, we were very hard because we had all these things that had happened, and we had, a, we had to reconcile. We had to forgive each other. We had, as Peggy always says, we rebuilt our marriage. Let me rephrase that. She says, we began to rebuild our marriage in 1972. And so, I mean, it was just, I'm, I'm, I've never told you guys that, so maybe I shouldn't have said all that to you. But I'm saying because Peggy and I are an example of what Paul is saying here. He transformed us from the inside out. And he transformed our marriage. We would never, ever, our kids did that special uh, anniversary party for us in June, our 50th anniversary. And that was the very first thing I said to about 100 people there. I said, if you'd have known us in 1972, you would have never expected us to celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. 
Only one person receives the glory for that, and it's the Lord Jesus. Because that, that's what Paul is talking about here. And just think of, in the Greco-Roman world, as I've described now several times, you have families starting to, husband and wife, children starting to think about this, starting to apply this, starting to depend on the Holy Spirit to do it, and you start to see transformation. That's why when 150 years, the Greco-Roman world is very different. In 300 years, the empire is almost gone. But the church, the church is replacing the empire. I mean, it's just, you see these things and you start, oh yeah, that's right, yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, this is unbelievably transformational stuff. This is how the gospel transforms everything. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Can I go on? Verse 19. I did 19, verse 20. Children, obey your parents most of the time. In everything, for this pleases the Lord. Now, for a six-year-old, they got it. For an 11-year-old, most of the time they got it. For a 14-year-old, they don't got it. The United States of America developed the developmental stage called adolescence. It isn't a word that comes out of, of any other part of the world. We developed that as a stage of development. And that crucial year of adolescence was segmented out from the others because kids start to act very differently because they want to be independent. They, want to be, they don't want to be dependent on mom and dad. They don't want you to show any affection in public. They don't want in any way to give any semblance of, of obeying you in front of their friends. You are their chief primary enemy in life. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But maybe I'm not, really. But, you know, the teen years, I've often put it this way. Adolescence is a disease. And... Somehow the teens survive it, but the parents don't. They sometimes don't. You know, they just don't survive it. It's just such a test. It's such a test for the parents. Because I would always say to my children when we were raising them, I will trust you until you give me a reason not to trust you. I will trust you. You, you want to do this? Okay, that seems reasonable. Uh, Mom and I will let you do it, but... You know, there are certain standards, there are certain givens, and if you violate my trust, you're going to lose that privilege. That was the same thing when they started driving, you know, which was, oh my goodness, I look back on that. That is one of the most devastating things in a, in, a, in a father's life. I mean, the mom too, but the father. You're giving the keys to your car to a 16-year-old. You know, a 16-year-old. They're going to drive your car. And your insurance rates go through the ceiling, you know, and police are watching your home all the time. <laughs> so Paul's saying, now I'm not going to write anything more up on the board. I don't want to bankrupt First National Bank. So in terms of the relationship, obedience, verse 21, fathers do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. One translation has, fathers, do not exasperate your children. What do they mean? And I don't they. What does Paul mean? What does the Holy Spirit inspired this mean? What does he mean by that? Say it again. Yes, it is. Yes. There's a lot more about these kinds of, of thoughts in the book of Proverbs. But just take the word provoke or exasperate. What, what does that mean? What's he getting at there? Teasing, taunting. Okay. Overbearing. Okay. What does that mean? Just not providing freedom, not providing uh, free will. Okay. Consequences to actions, just like kind of under your thumb type of a. Okay. The button. Ridiculing. Could be ridiculing, uh, demeaning them. Uh, it has a sense of unnecessarily creating the spirit of dissent anger. Okay. It's almost, and, and, and Glenn is correct. In the Proverbs, you see a lot more 
ideas and suggestions and thoughts, because Proverbs are observations about life, that fathers, discipline your children thoughtfully. Fathers, discipline your children focusing on the consequences, not just the actions. Fathers, be gracious and long-suffering with your children, because remember, you were a child at once. And so it's like... um, is it proper for a father to evidence or demonstrate grace with his son? And I'm saying we're all fathers, so I'm just leaving mothers out of this for now. But uh, to demonstrate manifest grace to your children? Why would you do that? Why not be a harsh, rigid disciplinary that never shows grace, never shows mercy. Yeah. Jesus died. Our relationship with the Heavenly Father is based on grace and mercy and compassion. Aren't you thankful? And I want to ask this question once you think about it. Aren't you thankful that God does not deal with you only on the basis of his justice? Please say yes to that. Because if God dealt with us only on the basis of justice, we'd be a smoldering cinder on the carpet. God deals with us in grace. I remember, and it it struck me after I did it. (laughs) I was just amazed uh, because my my son Jonathan was, he might have been about six, I think, but um, it may have been five, may have been seven, but it's around there. And when we when we were raising the kids, we had a thing on the uh, on the refrigerator of certain responsibilities they had and certain clear things we did not want them to do. And if they did either one did not fill the responsibility or did something that violated a family standard, there was a punishment with it. And sometimes it was a monetary punishment, which you know for little kids, a dollar is an enormous amount of money. And so I don't even remember what Jonathan did, but the the penalty was a dollar that he owed me. And because it was the first time he did it, I um, I said, well, son, now you knew what you did, and, and you know that that was not something that mom and dad wanted you to do. But penalty says a dollar. You only owe me a quarter. What did I just evidence to him? Grace. Unmerited favor. Then I sent him to his room for uh, for an hour, and about 30 minutes into that, I took him in a dish of, um, of, of chocolate ice cream with peanuts on top, which was his favorite, still is today. I exhibit, no, I'm sorry. When I get, said to him, you only want a quarter, that's mercy. When I took in the ice cream to him, that's grace. That's how God deals with us, doesn't he? Yes. A combination of mercy. We don't get what we deserve. And the provision of grace. He always unmerited, undeserved, gushing, Paul talks about it in the language of the feet, gushing out grace. And so how we deal with our children impacts and is modeled on the Heavenly Father's relationship with us. you agree with that? He's called our Father in heaven. How does our Father deal with us in heaven? Does he discipline us? Absolutely. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says he disciplines us because he loves us and proves we're his child. But his discipline is never, use the word, is never harsh. It doesn't provoke. It doesn't exasperate. It's a loving, restorative discipline. And so I know for us, just... You know, raising kids in the in the culture in which you know they're growing up and all of that is really difficult today. But these birds of wisdom, and, and as Glenn said a moment ago as well, that what the proverbs say about this: how, Dads, how do you treat your kids? Dads, how do you treat your children? Fathers, what do you do to model for your sons? Those kinds of things are really important. They are really, really important because they will see Jesus Christ through you. 
and their desire to know about Jesus Christ as they grow up is going to be filtered through you because you represent Jesus to your kids. And that's the hardest thing because, you know, our tendency is to say one thing but not always do that. <laughs> I remember, oh, my goodness, saying, oh, my goodness. So many times my kids caught me on this. Uh, I remember one time Jonathan and I were driving, and you know, the speed limit, I don't know what it was, 35 or something like that. And he said, Dad, you're going 45. That sign says 35. I'm like, oh, shut up, Jonathan. That was my inclination. I'm on a mission. I'm doing God's work. It doesn't matter. No, I said, thank you, son. You're right. And then, even more egregious, I used to buy a newspaper, out-of-town newspaper at Coles at 50 and Dodge. And you can pull right up front of there. And so he was with me, and I pulled right up in front, and Jonathan said, Dad, that sign says no parking, bus stop. And I said, son, I'm just going to run in and get a paper. I'll be right out. No, I didn't say that. I wanted to say that. I really did want to say that. But I thought, you know, Lord, the right thing for me to say is thank you, son. Thank you for reminding me that I should obey the signs. Talking about roles, that example you set is what he's going to do when he's in your place. I hope so. I've watched him with his two boys, and uh, Jonathan. Please don't misunderstand. This sounds like self-elevating, but my son said to me when they were here for our anniversary, he said, "Dad, so much of what you taught me was what you did, not what you said." That's a really important statement. That is a really important statement. He said, I want to be that kind of dad for my boys. I want to show them. I don't only want to tell them. That's just, oh, my goodness. My daughter's never said anything like that to me. You know, <laughs> my son did. So don't provoke lest they become discouraged. That, that, I love that, lest they become discouraged. You can, you can really discourage a, a child by your not well-thought-through discipline. You know, that's why I think, and maybe you all know what I'm talking about, it's really important for a husband and wife uh, to talk about discipline. How are we going to do this? Because kids will know mom isn't as consistent as dad, or dad isn't as consistent as mom. So they'll go to the one that's not consistent. You've got to be in this together, and as you know. Uh, this is like a counseling session, but anyway. Are there any questions? Because I want to move on to the, well, the other one, the economic uh, relationship, which is this one. This is so convicting, we want to leave it, right? This is, <laughs> let's leave this. It's getting too convicting. So what I want to do here, and this is, this is really often very difficult to understand, but 22 through 4.1 are talking about the workplace, the economic relationships of our lives. Now, I want to explain this to you, otherwise it's not going to make sense why Paul talks about it this way. The primary economic relationship in the ancient world was slave to master. That's horrible because, you know, that was not God's design. God did not create the institution of slavery uh, at all. But for lots of reasons over the history of the human race, it developed. And so you could go in and out of slavery. Now, again, this isn't like chattel black African-American slavery in the pre-Civil War South in the United States. It's not the same thing at all. A person could go in and out of slavery several times during their life. It could be because of debt. The normal practice in the ancient world, if you owe a debt and you can't pay it, you're enslaved. And you, quote, work off that debt, however long it might be. Um, many um, slave relationships were, if I say indentured servant, do you know what I mean by that? You would agree to come to the authority of someone who worked for someone for seven years or ten years or whatever. It may be a debt, it may be an offense or whatever. Um, if there's, this was very common, if there's military conquest, uh, those whom you conquer serve as your slaves. So, I mean, slavery is a very complicated thing in the ancient world, but it was a norm. The estimates are close to 60% of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. So, I mean, that's a huge number. That's just an un unbelievable number, really. <clears throat> and so 
what the Apostle Paul is talking about in these in this short passage, 22 through 4.1, is talking about, okay, you're a Christian. You've come to know Jesus Christ. Does that relationship with Jesus Christ transform your work relationship? The answer is yes. So look at verse 1 of chapter 4 first. Employers, masters, boss, treat your slaves justly and fairly. Justly, no abuse, no beating, and fairly, equitably. In the ancient world, slaves were paid. They were paid a certain wage. Slaves could own property in the Greco-Roman world. Again, this is very different from what existed in the pre-Civil War South. So that's why it's like almost an apples and oranges comparison. But nonetheless, slaves in the Greco-Roman world had very few rights. So Paul says, treat your workers fairly and justly. Why? It's a causal participle because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Who's that? Jesus. So your relationship with your master in heaven should affect your relationship with your employees. Do you expect Jesus to treat you justly and fairly? Of course, he does. He never does anything unjust or unfair to me. You treat your employees that way. What would that do? Just think about this for a minute. What would that do in the United States of America to labor unions? You wouldn't need them. Yeah, I mean, you're supposed to agree with that. But I mean, in other words, if that really were the model that people followed, it would, it would transform everything. Well, let's look at the other side. Verse 22. Slaves, now again, to apply it to our world today, you would say employees. In everything, those who are your earthly masters, not by way of service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, you're to obey them, fearing the Lord. Fear is a worship word. Fear is your response to the Lord Jesus and what he's done for you. So that relationship with him affects your relationship with your boss. So you obey him in everything, not by eye service, you know, when he's just not just when he's looking at you, but consistently and 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 with sincerity. Sincerity of heart. Verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as from the Lord. So from verse 23, who's your real boss? The Lord. And then he adds something in verse 24, which is absolutely radically transformative. There is an eternal significance to our work. because It's a causal participle. Because you know that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. So there's an eternal significance to our work. Our boss, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, your real boss is Jesus. And so you are working for him, so to speak. And so your attitude, everything about it, is to be reflecting my relationship with him. Another verse that fits here is 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So let me ask you a question. If those verses are true, what should be the chief, the chief goal that you have if you're making a, a car or you're, you're, you're making an appliance? Uh, 80%? Or excellence. I pursue excellence Excellent. in everything I do. Why? Because I serve Jesus. Amen. Can you see, if, you, if, if we had this applied, if this would apply in the United States of America, what would that do to productivity? It would be through the roof. What would it do to the quality, the quality management force that's in the workplace? 
they would hardly have anything to do. Because everybody's doing their best. Everybody's pursuing excellence. I mean, this is, this is almost utopian. But this is what the gospel does. Because Paul repeats at the end of verse 24, you are serving the Lord Christ. It's the only time that appears in the New Testament. Lord Jesus Christ is all over the place. Christ the Lord is all over the place. But Lord Christ, Lord first, Christ second. Lord is Kurios, Christ is Messiah. Your boss, your Lord is Jesus. So you have this extraordinary description of a workplace relationship. It's transformative. It's eternally significant. Because like in marriage, well, that's, I'm not going to bring the other one up, but like in marriage, the boss is Jesus, and the master relationships affects the relationship with the employee, and the employee's relationship with Jesus affects the relationship with the boss. That's, I've, I've, I've known companies and I've known institutions where that, that kind of, of a relationship exists, but it's not the norm in the United States, unfortunately. But when people come to know the Lord, and you're in companies where the Lord Jesus Christ is important. I saw the other day Interstate Battery. Did you ever see the mission statement? That's an incredible mission statement. Jesus is in the mission statement. They're down in Texas. I was, I was struck by that. I went and got a battery from my watch in there, and I, I, I was struck by the mission statement of inter interstate battery. They're very bold in what they say. And um, I don't know why I mentioned that, but I'm just, that kind of a, that's a unique thing in the United States today. But Paul is laying out the transformative nature of the gospel. It not only transforms marriage, not only transforms parent-child relationships, it transforms the workplace. That's why when you see this kind of situation in a slave culture, slavery's days are numbered. That's exactly what happened. Slavery's days are numbered. As the gospel begins to truly penetrate a culture, treating people in a demeaning, degrading way as substandard human beings is not going to last. Okay. Now, your thought paper for next week, is that 1,500 words or less. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ transform culture? Touch on marriage, touch on parent-child, touch on the workplace. Wouldn't that be a great paper to do? Seriously, wouldn't that be great? Yes. That would just be so wonderful for you to sit down and do. I know you won't do it, but it would be really wonderful. I would love to read it. All right. Any questions? It's a great passage of scripture, it really is. So next week, what we will plan to do, and unless you have 1,700 questions, we are going to finish the book of Colossians. So chapter 4 is a very short chapter, because uh, verse 7 through the end, he just mentions a whole bunch of names. I want to touch on a couple of them, but we're really, we will near it. So what I'd like to do, if it's all right, Fred, I want to finish this, but I want to introduce Nehemiah. So if you could send out the notes with the notice, that'd be great. So, all right? And I hope you're going to love Nehemiah. I really do. I'm going to pray. I don't have any questions. I'm going to pray. Lord, we're thankful for the opportunity to study the Word of God this morning. We've covered um, some areas that are really the grit of human existence. This is doing life. Doing life is involved in marriage, husband's and wife relationship. Doing life is parent-child relationship. Doing life is the workplace. And it's amazing in such a very short passage of Scripture, the Apostle Paul lays out how the gospel transforms each one of those relationships. And Lord, it, it takes time. This is what sanctification is all about, the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. But it's these three areas where there is the most difficulty and most stress, but it's also where Jesus Christ can really meet us at our need and continue his work of transformation. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us in these areas, helping us to learn from our mistakes, to learn 
from those opportunities that you give us and, and we drop the ball. You're so gracious. Just pick it up, get going, put your hand back in mine, let's go forward. That's what you keep saying to us. We thank you for that. Thank you, you're so gracious. Thank you, you're so merciful. Thank you, you're so compassionate in dealing with this. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, you now are our Heavenly Father. We are your children, and you love us. We have that incredible, awesome privilege of addressing you as Father, as Daddy. We can, we can talk to you about anything, and we can ask for your help in our marriages, with our children, grandchildren, and in our workplace. We want to be representatives of you. We want to show the world what it means to have faith in Jesus Christ and to live for him, to experience the transformation that he brings. Thank you for Chad. Thank you for his presence here. Thank you for his testimony. Continue now your work of transforming him into the image of Christ. Be with Joe, the loss of his dad, for anyone. That's always uh, a time of grieving. There's a loss. There's a lot of memories. There's a lot of things that sometimes only time can take care of. So give him your special grace. Second uh, Corinthians 1 talks about the comfort of God. I think it mentions it 10 times, Lord. May he experience that comfort. Help him in these days and weeks ahead. So we thank you for him and what he does for us. So Lord, we commit the rest of the day to you as we go out uh, in our separate ways now. Dismiss us with your blessing and may we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. 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 We'll see you next week.